Welcome, 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 everybody, to the Mike is Always Right podcast. I am your host, Mike. I am here in the studio, as always, with the number one producer in his own mind, Pablito. Pablito, thank you so much for a little bit of the Latin Spanish salsa. I am dreaming right now of Cozumel, Mexico. I am dreaming right now of uh, the beach in Puerto Rico or anywhere warm because the weather has been uh, so cold and snowy here. So again, welcome to the episode. I'm so glad to have you here, folks who are listening from near and from far. We're going to have a conversation with uh, former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly. Um, really, really excited about his candidacy um, because, quite frankly, he is a very simple guy. Hey, listen, my job is to interpret the laws. I'm not going to be a judicial activist. You're talking about a person who has years of experience already within the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court, has done numerous uh, opinions, and really, I, I think, has a really good resume to run again and to want and, and get the support of the people of Wisconsin. So uh, without any further ado, we're going to talk with Justice Dan Kelly, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Mike is Always Right podcast. As always, I am your host, Mike, and I am very, very happy right now to be joined by former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly. Daniel is actually going to be running for Supreme Court Justice again here in Wisconsin and I'm very excited to welcome to him, Judge Kelly. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on your show. It is, uh, uh, you've probably heard this before, but I am just so relieved to be talking with someone who's always right. <laughs> you know, what's funny is, is my wife always, she laughs when she hears that, right? And it's like, okay, maybe, maybe Mike is not always correct, right? But Mike is always going to answer things from the right-leaning conservative perspective um, because, you know, like, like we were kind of talking offline earlier, I have been in places, uh, looking at you, California, where policy has just destroyed such a beautiful place, you know? Yeah, so I uh, so you and I uh, share that uh, I'm originally a Santa Barbara boy, and um, my parents moved when I was young, so I did a lot of my growing up years uh, just west of Denver, out nice. in Colorado, and then um, and I came to Wisconsin uh, because a a recruiter from Carroll College now that they're Carroll University now apparently, but back then just humble Carroll College. Uh, so the recruiter came out to Colorado and, uh, and convinced me to come out here. And it, frankly, it wasn't hard to do. I'd never been to Wisconsin before. I didn't know a soul here. But she explained to me how I'd actually be able to afford to go to school. And, I, you know, my family, we didn't have a whole lot growing up. Uh, and so, you know, a, a, the financial aid package she was able to put together for me made it possible for me to, uh, to go to college. And so I came out here, I had all my earthly possessions packed neatly in my 71 Chevelle. And, uh, and there there was out. no U-Haul truck, was there? There was no U-Haul, no <laughs> need for that. So I, everything was, uh, so I had, uh, I have to tell you, I had the most wonderful introduction to the people of Wisconsin that I can uh, even imagine. So, like I said, I didn't know anybody out here, but the recruiter told me there was good fishing in Wisconsin. I love fishing. They were not lying. They were not lying at all. Uh, so I came out a little bit early so I could do some fishing before studies got underway. And so I found myself 
at a campground on a lake in Waukesha County. And it was a beautiful weekend. And apparently the rest of the state thought so too, because they were all there. <laughs> yep. Uh, and uh, so the campsite was full, but through one thing and another, I ended up sharing a campsite with a young family from Sheboygan Falls. And they were just remarkable. Um, they, uh, they invited me to their campfire for dinner. Uh, they shared breakfast with me the next morning. They took me uh, sailing on their boat. And basically over a long weekend, they taught me what it, uh, what it is to be a Wisconsinite. And I came away from that thinking I had just had the most marvelous stroke of luck because clearly I had just met the most welcoming and warm people in the entire state of Wisconsin. And you probably know the rest. Uh, the longer I was here, uh, they were they were remarkable. But the longer I was here, I found out they were not unique. Uh, what I discovered is that in school and at work and in church and in parks all over the state, I found many, many people like that. And, and I learned that this is who Wisconsinites are. They are the people of the open hand and generous heart. And I just... I fell in love with them that very first day. Well, and that's amazing because, you know, my wife, uh, uh, before we got married and started dating, she was the first person from Wisconsin I had ever met. And when we were going to, to Bible college, uh, I, I remember we were we were just dating, hadn't been dating very long. And she she took me up. We met her parents uh, halfway between Tulsa, Oklahoma and and in Wisconsin. And the first time I met my father-in-law, this man gave me a pickup truck. He said, hey, I heard your car isn't running well i said yeah it isn't you know but you know it is what it is and and uh, you know to to your point you know hands out stretch ready to help ready to yeah. show yeah. love and compassion and generosity i mean that's um you know being a, a california boy i'm really not that excited about the recent snow we have or <laughs> the, the snow that we get every year um yeah. but the warmth and the generosity and and really just the people in this state, their their steadfastness has been utterly amazing for me. So so let me ask you this. This is kind of one of those things where you've been in the legal profession for a long time. You've been a lot of different places. You you did serve on on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Where did you get? And I'm I'm assuming you have to have a love for the law if, yeah. if you're doing it this long. Where do you think that was birthed? Where do you think you got that from? Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, I it, it goes pretty far back. Uh, in fact, all the way back to, uh, believe it or not, seventh grade. Uh, so I knew in seventh grade that I wanted to be a lawyer. And, um, and I think a large part of that was because of the way I was raised. So uh, my mom and dad uh, instilled in me a deep sense of justice and, um, you know, it, the importance uh, of treating people fairly, treating people according to the law, making sure you respect who they are, and, uh, and always, always uh, ensuring that, they're, uh, that they have the right that all the rest of us have to live free um, with our own, uh, our own views and ideas and religion, and, uh, and that that formed the basis for uh, the possibility of living together in society in peace and with the potential for prosperity. So that's where I, I just, I, I, I grew to have a love of the law at that early age. And then, you know, as I went along, 
uh, it was confirmed uh, time after time whenever I had an opportunity uh, in, uh, in high school uh, to study a little bit of the law, uh, in college to study a little bit of it there. And each time uh, the desire to go to school, to law school grew and grew. And so, uh, and so I did, and um, it, it has just been a, an immensely satisfying career. Uh, and I've uh, I've loved each of the roles that I've played, and but um, but definitely at the top of them, uh, my most favorite uh, has been serving the people of Wisconsin on their Supreme Court. And and we're we're going to get to that in a moment. But what I wanted to kind of get to was. You you served for a period of time, right? You were appointed by then Governor Walker, right? You you yeah. served for a time, and I, I it's it's so odd. We're not talking about this being twenty years ago or or whatever. This wasn't very long ago, but it seems like yeah. there's so many different things now. Talk to me about the decision when you said, "Okay, I'm going to run in 2023," because. We're not that far yeah. removed, you know, from from your service, that's right? Yep, right? yep, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, so twenty twenty uh, was, uh, and this kind of goes into why I'm running in twenty three. Twenty twenty taught me the age old lesson that in politics, timing is everything. And so, uh, twenty twenty taught us once again what happens when you mix uh, partisan races with nonpartisan races. So the uh, Supreme Court election uh, takes place in April in the spring, yep. and then our partisan races they you know they take place in the fall. And, uh, and what happened in 2020 was uh, that there was a, a presidential primary on the same day as my election, and that has outsized uh, influence on spring elections because of this. Yeah. Uh, turnout in spring is usually about anywhere from 25% to 33%, maybe a little bit more of turnout in the fall. So if you move a partisan election into the spring, the party that has uh, that partisan election turnout on that side just dramatically uh, goes through the roof. Yeah. And on the other side, it stays in historical norms. So what happened is, we had a, a presidential primary for one party and not the other. And so the turnout model followed what one would expect. And we just got uh, sucked under by a tidal wave. Yeah. And, um, but if you take a look at, uh, at the historical performance, so you know, after the results came in, Governor Walker called me and said, Dan, I know what you're thinking and you need to stop. Uh, go back <laughs> and come he was, he was he was giving you he was giving you some some tough love like he come was, on man yeah. he says you need to go back and look at your performance in this race compared to other races in which there was no presidential primary and so that's what I did and what I discovered is if you set aside races in which there is uh, a presidential primary on the same day uh, there's only one justice in the history of the state who got more votes than I did. And so, uh, and that was Dave Prosser, and that was uh, back in 2011 when uh, Act 10 was kind of juicing the turnout a little bit. Yeah. So Dave got a few more votes than I did, uh, but other than that, I mean, there's just there's no one who's gotten many as many votes as I did. So, as uh, as people after 2020, as they encouraged me uh, to run again 
they said, look, this is, uh, this is a consequence of timing. Um, and that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And we want you back on the court. And, uh, and we believe that if you run, you'll definitely win. And we'll be entirely behind you if you do. And so, uh, so I set out on a journey around the state uh, to see if that was in accord with, uh, with others and, and to see how broad that sentiment might be. And what I discovered is just an immense amount of support and encouragement for me to, uh, to run. And, um, and, and so that went into, um, that played the major role in my thought process in, uh, in running this night. Because this is not about, um, uh, and it cannot be about a specific person, right? This can't be a matter of ambition it can't be a matter of, well, I simply want to be on the court and so I'm going to run. This has to be a combination of two things. One, demonstrated capability to do the role of the court well. And then two, a broad-based desire to have that person run and represent that, um, that process, that uh, way of conducting the court's business on the court. So, uh, and, that's, and so that's what I found as I went around the state is... Uh, they um, they told me uh, that they valued a great deal faithfulness to the Constitution and upholding the rule of law consistently every single day. And uh, and they told me they wanted me back on the court for that reason that I would bring uh, that I would bring those principles to the court once again. And so um, it was a uh, you know we we prayed about this my wife and I. And, um, you know, because this is not an easy decision to undertake. It's a big project. Yeah. And, um, and eventually uh, we decided that this is something that I needed to do. Um, and, uh, and and largely because of that encouragement, that just uh, widespread support. So let me ask you this. And, and you know, the the Wisconsin Supreme Court, their their 10-year terms, Correct. Correct. Yep. So tenure terms. And so each one of the justices every year, right? Because it's only one one justice a year, correct? That that correct. has to run. Okay. Right. So 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 they're they're basically tenure terms, one each year that you're gonna do, and it's often, you know, in the spring and whatnot. So, you know, the, the question that I have is you have obviously seen a lot since your first term. You know, we we talk about uh, you know, the election of 2016, the election of 2020, some of the different bills, some of the different things that have come, you know, before not only the Wisconsin Supreme Court, but the U.S. Supreme Court. We talk about, and, and you and I briefly touched on this offline before we started recording, we talk about this buzzword term called judicial activism. You know, yeah. I, I kind of wanted to know from you, what does that mean to you, right? And, and when we talk about a 10-year term, it's impossible to know what the next 10 years is going to look like, yeah. but it's possible to look at what are these documents, this constitution, this, this rule of law and how we divide that and how does judicial activism play into that or, or not? Yeah. And, and that's, that's a great framework within which to address that. So judicial activism, I think probably the best way of, of, of looking at that, of, uh, that term is it, uh, it refers to any time that a jurist allows something other than the law as it's written to inform the decision 
uh, to which uh, he comes. And so, uh, so this is so the proper job is to come to the uh, controlling documents, the the Constitution, uh, the statutes, the regulations, whatever they might be, and you look at it uh, according to the way it's written and not the way that you would have written it if you had been the author, not according to your personal preferences, but just according to what it already says. And this is this is absolutely critical. I mean, this is the uh, really the basis for being able to live together in peace and with the prospect of, of prosperity is the idea that we would follow the rule of law, that we'd be able to uh, make our decisions based on what the law says and not, uh, not based on how we think a judge might eventually uh, decide on whether that's a good or a bad law or a wise or an unwise law, but just according to the way the law actually is. And if we don't have that confidence, then uh, it makes it really hard to make decisions every day because you have no idea what a, a judge might think about, uh, about your decision if he simply decides to set aside the law and decided on some other basis. So anytime that a jurist allows something other than the law to inform his decision, that's judicial activism. And so it's, uh, it's easy enough to say, ah, I won't let politics affect the work that I do. Uh, I'll be a judge and I'll be fair and impartial. And uh, interestingly enough, even those who go on to be judicial activists will say in, uh, in the election or you know, at the federal level, at the confirmation hearing, they'll say, oh yeah, it's, it's completely wrong to legislate from the bench. And then they get on the court and they legislate from the bench. Um, so so the, the way of distinguishing between those who will and those who won't is one, to look at their track record, right? That's the best predictor of uh, the kind of uh, judge or justice that person is going to be. And so I'm in the, in the unique position of being the only candidate in this race who has a track record on the Supreme Court. If, if anyone wants to know the kind of ju uh, justice I will be um, next term, all they got to do is look at the scores of opinions I've already written. It's all there. So, um, so the way that you, uh, and, 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 you know, when we talk about judicial activism, the opposite of that is judicial conservatism. The idea that we are simply going to follow the law as written. So it becomes really important to, uh, to ask candidates, well, how do you do that? Right. I mean, it's not is it just, you know, you you drop the phrase you're a judicial conservative and therefore, you know, we just have to rely on that. I think um, I think candidates owe the people of Wisconsin an explanation of how that actually works. And it's pretty straightforward, but it looks like this. So uh, so when I do the job of a justice, I start with the the law that applies to the case. Those are the premises. And then I use rigorous logic uh, to reason from those laws all the way down to the conclusion of the case. Now, if you can, once you're done, if you can look back and see an unbroken chain of logic between the conclusion and the controlling law, well, then you know the conclusion is commanded by the law and nothing else. But if you see any breaks in, in, in logic, that's where uh, personal preferences seep in, and that's where judicial activism starts. So, um, so you know, it, we we have to recognize 
that everybody who goes to the bench has political views. There is, in the history of the country, there's never been a jurist who doesn't have political views. The key is whether they can set them aside when they're doing the work of the court. And I think the only way of doing that is the method I just described. Um, it's, the, it's the only reliable way of checking on whether you've allowed uh, your personal uh, preferences to infect the work of the court. So, um, so I, I encourage anyone who, uh, who's listening to a judicial candidate who claims to be a judicial conservative uh, to explain how they would go about setting aside their personal views to do the work of the court. And if they can't describe something like what I just described, then, you know, uh, then perhaps, perhaps they're not judicial conservatives. Well, and that's, and that's kind of, you know, I, I, I like the fact that you're being very transparent in that, you know, I think, and, you know, I've watched several, uh, you know, Supreme court confirmation hearings and, there's all these promises made, right? There's all, but, but when you, when you really come down to it, oftentimes, if you are going to be for the U S Supreme court, if you're going to be, you know, nominated by a president, you have political leanings, right? Because I mean, that's, that's just how it goes. So that's why you're always looking at five, four, six, three, you know, whatever the case may be. I do think it's interesting. Like you said, when you're talking about a position within the Wisconsin Supreme court, that's elected by the people, you know, it's like, Hey, this is, this is nonpartisan. I have to almost for lack of a better term, divorce myself from what my political leanings are yes. and just apply the law and the law as it's written. It seems like there's maybe some some justices that maybe really truly want to be legislators, but this is where they yeah. ended up, right? Yeah, well, and this is um, this is true. There are and there is a certain segment of the population. Uh, I think it's relatively small, but uh but they will uh, they will encourage judges and justices uh, to make up the law as they go along. I, I still remember there was a um, a presentation I was doing a handful of years ago, and it was just an eye opener in a lot of ways. Um, so I was doing a presentation on you know the proper role and function of the court. And at the end of it, I was taking some questions, and uh, an attorney uh, said, "Well, I have a question." She says, um, "You know, I want to challenge you." on this idea that uh, that you don't uh, incorporate uh, politics or political views into the court. She says, I think you should. And, and this is what she said. She says, well, you know, you have to understand, Justice Kelly, that there are people who come to the court and, um, and this is the last opportunity for them to get the law to be the way that it should be. She says, so you gotta know that sometimes um, it takes a really long time to get the law changed if you go through this chair. And sometimes it's really hard to get it changed if you go through the legislature because, you know, you, you might not uh, get the amount of support that you need to get a majority. Um, there might be, you know, another segment of the state that doesn't want that policy. And so, and so Justice Kelly, you're the last opportunity for them to get the law to be the way that it should be. And uh, and I you know I thought that was a remarkably honest, transparent way of stating the judicial activist position. That is what they're about. They look at the law and they say, okay, I see what the legislature did, but I'm not uh, I'm not comfortable with it. I'm not satisfied with it. I want it to be different. 
And, but it's hard to get the legislature to change. So how about if I go to the court? Maybe uh, I only have to persuade four people and then the law is different. Well, there are, um, there are a number of judges who subscribe to that role. And so, you know, as we look at the, uh, the composition of the Wisconsin Supreme Court right now, um, many people who score the balance say that it is a four to three-ish uh, court, uh, the four being those who understand their role is to apply the law, not to make it up as they go along. Mm -hmm. That tells you that there are three or ish. Um, some people say it's balanced three and a half to three and a half, um, but that's, um, and, it, and it may be. Um, but there are those uh, on the court who do want to take an active role in establishing the policy of the state of Wisconsin. And I just think that is completely wrong. And it's not because the, you know, necessarily because the, uh, policy they want to advance is wise or unwise or whatever. It's just not the court's job. And so uh, to do that is to break faith with the people of Wisconsin. They've said through their constitution, they've said, I don't want the court or the executive making the laws for the state. That's why we have a legislature. We've told the legislature, you make the laws, and then we'll have the executive branch enforce the laws. And we'll have the judiciary do this limited, important, but limited job. And that is to use the law that already exists to resolve the cases that come before it. And well, and I think, I think it's interesting that the, the story that you told about that person, it, it, what I was hearing in that was timing, right? It just takes too long. That's why we'll have, you know, the courts take it over. I, I think that's maybe very short-sighted, right? Because... I think one of the benefits that the framers put in in the Constitution, U.S. Constitution, and even in Wisconsin Constitution, like you were pointing out, like, hey, the legislators are there to legislate. And there's so many things that go on when legislators legislate. There is compromise. There is what's best for this area may not be best for this area. But this is this is how this goes. And I, I bring it back to um some of the Supreme Court rulings that we have, let, let's just talk about for just a second, you know, Roe versus Wade, you know, that was legislators not being able to legislate and six justices saying this is the opinion that we have that lasted for decades. Right. So do mm -hmm. you want the 435 in the, in the U.S. House, you know, legislators to work and compromise and come up with a bill or do you want this series of nine people to to make decisions for the entirement of America. It doesn't sound like that makes sense. It concentrates way too much power in too few people. And to your point, it's like, hey, well, that really isn't my job. I'm not the one making the laws, right? They're going to yeah. be the ones that make the laws. And if we're going to decide something about that law, we need to apply that law as it's written. There you go. And so, you know, you look at... Um... Uh, exactly this, what you were mentioning about the size of Congress, the size of the state legislature. I mean, here we've got 132 legislators, 99 assemblymen, 33 senators. Yep. And if anyone thinks that, that, uh, that that's a way to efficiently uh, create a whole bunch of laws, then they're not paying attention to human nature. <laughs> yeah. Well, and but that but that it wasn't designed to be and quick. Exactly. Yeah, exactly yeah, exactly. Right. 
So if you get 132 people together to talk about a specific, uh, a specific idea, it's going to take a while to work your way through that. That was a, uh, that was not a bug in the way this uh, was put together. It was a feature and it was designed to make sure that um, there was a great deal of input from every sector of society. And, um, you know, and on the court, we don't have that. Wisconsin Supreme Court, seven people. And yeah. not only just seven people, there's seven lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, if you think they're going to represent a broad cross-section of the state of Wisconsin, well, then I'd like to take you around and introduce you to the people of Wisconsin. So Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, um, I, you know, one of the things I've learned in, in my practice over the years is that uh, lawyers aren't like other people. They're kind of, they're kind of an odd lot in, a, in, in some ways. Um, and, you know, there are so many different perspectives and so many different lived experiences and so many different circumstances that people find themselves in that they want to have reflected in their public policy. And that's why we have the legislature make it, not the courts. So it really is a question of, can you be humble enough on the courts to understand that you've not been asked to make the state's public policy? You've just been asked to use it to resolve the cases that come before you. It is a humble role. And if you're, you know, if you're of a mind uh, to be the grand wise uh, proclaimer of the law and what it will be, that's not the branch for you. Then, you know, you, uh, those folks should, uh, should seriously think about running for a, for a legislative seat. So let me ask you this. We talked about your love for the law, right? We talked yeah. about where, where that was kind of birthed, you know, do you ever feel like, you know, Hey, this is difficult. This is this, this law, this, this, case this this whatever you know are there ever those times when the challenge is just so great and i mean that's that's where i think sometimes and just just a personal opinion personal opinion um the judicial activists are trying to make themselves feel better be better they're trying to fix something that they perceive as being broken is it difficult if you're not doing that to interpret a law that maybe isn't the best law maybe isn't you know what I mean? I, I guess. Yeah. How how does it go on on that end of it when there maybe isn't that love there? Yeah. Well, and and so for those who don't have uh, my methodology of uh, the work of the court, I can imagine for them it is exceedingly difficult uh, to do the job of the court when the law requires a conclusion that you don't personally like. Um, so, you know, there are those who have written about the United States Supreme Court and the members and how over time uh, they seem to drift into judicial activism. And I think that the reason for that, and this is, you know, uh, so this is you and me talking, this is not a scientific study, and I don't have a license to practice psychology in the state of Wisconsin. <laughs> I, only play, I only play a psychiatrist on TV, so yeah, okay, I, I, get it. I get it. I get it. So, uh, so take this with all those caveats. But I think what happens is, especially on courts of last resort, uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, the other state Supreme Courts, um, generally speaking, the cases you take are only cases that the court decides to take. It's entirely discretionary jurisdiction. Um, you know, the United States Supreme Court, there are some classes of cases they have to take. 
by the overwhelming vast majority is discretionary. And so what ends up happening is you decide to take only the most difficult of cases. And so every day you walk into chambers and what's on your desk? Nothing but the most difficult cases in the state. And so, you know, you work your way through them and, you know, we're all human beings and, uh, and we want to be, um, we want to be comfortable with the work that we do at the end of the day. We want to look back on it and go, yeah, I feel really good about what I did. And the problem is if you are going to be faithful to the law rather than to your personal feelings, uh, those two things will come into conflict from time to time. Because there will be there will be cases where you look at the law and it commands a particular outcome, and you look at the outcome and you think, but I don't like that outcome. A judicial conservative says, notwithstanding the fact that I don't like the outcome, I will still do as the law commands. Now the problem is if you don't have not my methodology and you're just struggling with uh, with that difficult case, eventually what I think happens is uh, the jurist says at some point, someday, struggling with this every day, walks in the chambers one day and says, you know what, just for once, I'd like for the case to come out the way I want it to come out. And so they um, massage a little bit of language here, they downplay a statutory provision there, and all of a sudden, the conclusion looks really nice. And they walk out of chambers that day and they say, that was a good day. I like how that case came out. And then they walk back in the next day. And what do they have on the desk? Nothing but the hardest cases in the state. Now it's a little bit easier to massage the language, to downplay some controlling provisions. And you arrive at the conclusion that surprise, once again, you like and it's probably done with the best of intentions right i mean i yes. I, I always I, I i bring it back like like you're saying you know there probably is no easy day right there's no oh this is an easy one this is a slam dunk guys let's just take friday off right i mean right but, but yeah. i think but i think what to your point it's it's you you just spend so much time with the most difficult of things and so this feels good. Maybe it begins as something that, you know, well, I just want to make a difference. Well, you're not really there to make a difference, are you? You're there to That's right. interpret the law. Exactly. So if you want to make a difference, run for the legislature. <laughs> well, and and I, I think that's what, and unfortunately, it's almost what people expect nowadays. And I say that to say this. They expect somebody to take a stand and and make an action and and you know do this that and the other, and and I think to your point, no, that's really not our job. Our job is to take and apply the law equally, faithfully, and you know across the board to everybody. And I think that's probably one of the few things those that ideology is really what stands between us and chaos. Don't you think? Yes, I do, um, and, and truly, it is uh, the difference between. Um, a rational world and a chaotic one. Because if uh, if you can't know what the law uh, is going to be that's applicable to you until you uh, are in a lawsuit and the judge has ruled, well, then you really can't organize your life according to the law because you just never know what it is. 
And so um, the whole foundation of society rests on our laws being knowable and followed, right? So when I got into the, uh, into the race this year, one of my opponents, uh, her spokesman, said, while Justice Kelly is back on his views of the law are just way outside the mainstream. And it made me laugh because my view of the law is that the courts should follow it. And if that makes me a radical, I think that actually says more about them than it does about me. Well, and I think we're, we're living in a society that wants to feel good, right? So, yep. you know, we, 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 the law is too hard or it's too difficult or it wasn't, it was passed by these people or, or those people. No, that's the law, unfortunately. And this is where we're at. My job is to simply interpret and make sure we're following the law. And I think people uh, falsely, in my, my opinion, falsely want somebody that's going to fix what they perceive is broken. But what happens if it's not what they perceive, but what the reality is and then we get into this again judicial activism that's really seems to be a self-defeating cycle yeah absolutely true and you know in in the limitations uh, on the court structurally uh just make that such a dangerous proposition so one of the things that you uh that you find out pretty quickly uh as you uh, do the work of the court and in, uh, in, in particular in the oral arguments is you hear of all of the possible unintended consequences of a decision. And that was one of the things that struck me very early on in my tenure on the Supreme Court, is how important it is to, uh, to uh, resolve uh, cases narrowly and uh, without any deviation from what the Constitution and the law requires, because we just aren't set up to be able to figure out what those unintended consequences might be. Now, in the legislature, you at least have the opportunity to have 132 people saying, wait, have you thought about this? Wait, have you thought about that? On the court, we have seven people. And there's just no way that we can adequately uh, uh, control for all of the potential uh, unintended consequences if we stray beyond our proper remit, which is just applying the law as it exists. Well, it's so, difficult, and it's difficult to hold the justices accountable because that's a 10 year term. Yeah. Whereas if a law is written and it isn't that great, you know, there's a legislative cycle, it will come up soon, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and yeah, we yeah. can take care of that at the ballot box, right? If that's yeah, something that a, isn't something that's, that's, you know, enjoyed or whatever the case may be. Right. So, yeah, exactly. To your point, it's like, hey, if we stray from this, the unintended consequences of what we do may or may not affect me as a justice because I got eight years left on my term. Right. <laughs> right. And, and yeah. you know, who knows what's going to come up? Exactly. And that's, you know, and that makes um, and I think there are two things that follow inexorably from that. One uh, is the importance uh, of not legislating from the bench uh, because uh, because it is such a long term. And it, it takes such a long time for be able, uh, people to be able to pull you out of that position and say, look, we told you in the Constitution, we don't make, want you to make the law, right? Yeah. And the other is in, in being really careful about the people you put there in the first place. And, uh, and so that's why, you know, as I travel the state of Wisconsin, uh, I think people just as a natural reaction to some of what they've seen happen on the Supreme Court, they tell me, we don't want to gamble with uh, who's going to be there. 
when we when uh, when that election comes up, we want to be able to elect someone that we have no question about. We know uh, how he does the job of justice. We want somebody that's got a proven record. And uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why I've gotten such support as I go around the state is because I do have a record and people can look at that and they say, you know, I see here, um, even if I might not agree with the outcome in this case, I see that you followed the law. And, and so if I don't like the conclusion, my responsibility is to go to the legislature and get them to change it, right? Uh, it's not to it's not to tell the court, you know, you should do the legislator's job. So uh, so that's the thing. We you know we just can't be gambling uh, with who's going to be um, on that court. And the other thing, you know, and I think it's um, uh, public safety. They want to know that the law enforcement community is going to be allowed to do their job. Um, and the law enforcement community tells me that uh, they can't do that unless the Supreme Court day after day is consistent with the way that it applies the law. The last thing that they need is to be out in the field making snap decisions, just heartbeat decisions. Yeah. And, and wondering, I wonder what the law is about this because the court is just uh, constantly changing what it says and the court is changing what the legislature has said. I wonder what the law is going to be that affects the decision I have to make in the next split second. So, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why they support me is they know that um, that I will day after day do the uh, consistent job of just applying the law as it already exists. Well, and I think that's you know to your point in 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 that that exchange right there that you just said you use probably the most important word twice that I think that a lot of people in Wisconsin are, are, they may not know it, but I think they're hungering and thirsting after it. It's consistency yeah. and applying yeah. the law consistently and not, you know, uh, even for good intended purposes. Yeah, we can say that. No, we want to be consistent because there are people, like you said, law enforcement that is literally relying on us every single day when they're having to make split second decisions. You know, just in this case, they're having to make split second decisions. They want to know that the law is going to be applied consistently. So let me ask you this as we kind of get ready to wrap up here. What does the next couple of months look like for you? Um, you know, you're, you're going to be out, you're going to be meeting people, you're going to be fundraising, you're going to be doing those things. What is, what do the next couple of months look like for you? Cause, cause we're, we're, we're into that season, right? I mean, they, yeah, we are. I mean, really it's a spring election, but the spring elections are one in the dead cold of winter. I mean, that's yeah. just the truth, right? So what, what do the next couple yeah. of months look like for you? And, and, where can we find you online and donate and learn more about you and all that great stuff? Well, thank you so much for asking. I think the next couple of months are going to involve a whole lot of shivering. Um, and, but this is, uh, this is my favorite part of a campaign. And it is getting around the state and talking with people who care about the courts and the future of the state and, um, and, and getting a chance to interact with them. Um, I've, always, uh, I've always loved that. So, um, so that's going to be, uh, it's going to be interviews, it's going to be uh, events, it's going to be a whole lot of stuff. And, um, you know, for folks who, uh, who want a little more information, uh, they can go to justicedanielkelly.com. Uh, that's our uh, campaign website. Um, on Twitter, if they'd like to follow me, uh, it's justicedankelly. 
Uh, apparently, uh, not enough room to put in my whole name. <laughs> Somebody already snagged it. Wait a minute. Right? Yeah. Hey, hang on. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, uh, but for those adventurous enough to really want to know uh, who I am as a justice, they can pick up any of the uh, any of the opinions that I've written while I was on the bench. Uh, I I understood one of my responsibilities as I wrote those opinions was to uh, write it in a way that is accessible to non-lawyers. Um, because this is, uh, you know, this is, I, I regard those opinions as being a report card to my bosses on what I have done with the authority they've loaned to me. And so, um, so this is not uh, where we do inside baseball talk. It, it shouldn't be jargon. It should be uh, telling the people of Wisconsin in plain English. This is what I've done with the authority that you've lent to me, and here's why. And I want them to be able to uh, to pick up any of those opinions, read through it, and say, "Oh, okay, I get it. I see what he's saying, and I see what he did." Um, so, uh, so that's the uh, for those who want the most in-depth understanding, that would be where to go. But um, you know, we've uh, taken a little bit of a synopsis of some of that, put it on the website, and we'll be tweeting out about it uh, every once in a while. So, uh, so uh, hopefully people will get a chance to be reacquainted with me uh, and uh, in my judicial philosophy and the importance of keeping the court uh, as a court and not as a second legislature. Definitely makes sense. So justicedanielkelly.com, justicedanielkelly.com. You can go there. You can learn about you know, what uh, Justice Kelly is all about. You can contribute, which, you know, that's always something you can, you can sign up to join and, and, you know, help out uh, uh, as far as within the campaign. Um, So I really appreciate you coming and talking with me. I I really love to get you out here on, on the Western side of the state. And, you know, like you said, get get reintroduced to the, to the people. So uh, I really appreciate you dropping in. I really appreciate you taking the time. And, and so, you know, we'll just say it one more time, justicedanielkelly.com. Go there, learn more about this candidate because your voice matters, your vote matters. And if you want somebody that, you know, is just going to interpret and they're not going to be that legislative judicial activist, I think you definitely deserve to take a look at Justice Dan Kelly. So thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. And I'll look forward to, uh, uh, to seeing you when I come out to Western Wisconsin. Good deal. Thank you so much, sir. You bet. I can honestly say that there is one thing that the people of the United States hate, and they hate a coronation. They hate, hey, this is the person and this is this is who it is to be. So my encouragement to everybody is look at the body of work that these candidates have. Look at their opinions. Look at what they stand for. Look at what type of justice they are going to be. Because like we alluded to in the actual interview, this is a 10-year term. So when you get this person, you're going to have this person for a good long time. So I really appreciate Justice Daniel Kelly coming on the show. Once again, justicedanielkelly.com. Give him a look. If you want to contribute, there's where you can contribute. Uh, My website, www.mikegrahita.com. It has all the comings and goings and what's going on with me and the different events and things that I'm going to be doing. 
Also, News Undone, www.newsundone. A lot of different articles, a lot of different things that I've written. Uh, really, really would love you to go there. But, you know, this isn't a coronation. This isn't just because this person wants to do it and they're a nice person, we're going to elect them. No. Put these candidates through their paces. Ask them the questions. Do the digging. Understand the opinions that they've written, especially when we're talking about an important position like being on the Supreme Court. So until next time, keep pushing, keep grinding, keep taking care of business. This republic is worth that. This state is worth that. And it's worth that to our country. So have a great day. God bless. And we'll see you next time.